Amen. Aren't you thankful that we can rest on that wonderful truth that whatever you have, uh, whatever's on your shoulders is under God's control. We dismiss our children for children's ministry. We're in 1 Peter chapter number 1. And I invite you to stand. And if you um, don't have a Bible, if you can look on with somebody who does, or uh, we'll have, by and large, the text that we're looking at will be on the screen. And uh, we'll be looking at verse number 13. And we'll read down to verse number 17. Peter writes, verse number 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, past the time of your sojourning, here in fear. We've looked at the two primary commands, the first two commands given to us in 1 Peter. This morning we're going to look at the third and this is the third command given to us thus far in 1 Peter. And so this morning, I want us to see out of verse 17, he says at the end of the verse, sojourning here in fear. In other words, conduct your life in fear. Well, that doesn't sound too encouraging, does it? But it ought to be. And it should be when we understand what God's intention for us really ought to be. And so, verse 17, the fear of God. I want to preach this morning on the third commandment, fear God. Fear God. Thank you. Please be seated. We've mentioned verses 1 through 12, Peter gave us no commands. Instead, he just celebrated the wonderful God who loves us. We get to verse 13. We saw the first command. It says, hope to the end for the grace or fill up with hope, overflow with hope. Hope in the Bible is expectation. You ought to be expecting God to be God in your life. So many people expect God to be there as a spare tire they expect God to exist because He's God, but you're not filled and overflowing with expectation for God to be God in your life, but Peter says you ought to be. And then he gave us the second command we looked at last week, and that is to be holy. Verse 15 and verse 16 give us that second command. Be holy, God says, for I am holy. So the first command is to be hope-filled. And we learn that God is the source of that hope, His grace, His enabling, His power. Why should Christians be so hope-filled? Haven't you seen the news? Yeah, but I've read God's news. And God's news is He's still God. Everything's going just like He told us it would go. And there's nothing that's happening that's taking God by surprise, so don't be filled with hope based upon current trends. Do you know that the news, they, they are designed 
to, um, to present the negative. That, that's, that's what happens. You ever seen when, when there's a hurricane, how most of the time when there's a major catastrophic storm, it's always less than what they preached it would be because the news is bent that way. And God says, if you're going to put your confidence in the news, in the weather forecast, if you're going to put your confidence in a sports team or something else, you're going to get disappointed. You put your confidence in God and you're going to be filled to overflowing. God is the source of a living hope. And we saw be holy, be holy. And God is the standard for holiness. Be holy, God says, not as the church not as the church you left, not as the church you joined, not as the church you used to go to, not as holy as your brother or your uncle, your mama or your daddy, not as holy as somebody else you've ever seen. But God says you're to be holy as holy as he is holy. He's the source of our confident expectation and hope, but he's also our standard for holy living. And someone says, well, that's just daunting. That's just pie in the sky. That's impossible. But what God is telling us, what Peter is telling us is to be filled with hope because God is the source and to be holy as God is the standard simply means we need to be saturated with God. We need to be saturated with God. And then we move to the third Command And as I've said, just in case you wonder, if you're reading through here and you say, no, I saw a command in verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. Well, all of these other commands, they are simply modifiers of the main command. So the, main, the first primary command given to us in verse 13 is to hope, be filled with hope. And how we are filled with hope is by girding up the loins of our mind, right thinking, being sober in our mind, get serious about the things of God. Why? So you would be filled with hope. The reason why some people are not expecting God to do anything is because you're so intoxicated with the things of this world. You've got more conspiracy theories, theories going through your brain than you do the concrete word of God that's forever settled in heaven. So he He's just simply giving us these modifying uh, commands to help us with the primary command. So we move to the third command this morning, and that is to sojourn here in fear. Notice verse 13, and if ye call on the Father. What he's saying is, and if, it's the Greek word a, it would look like if we were to write it, it'd be e, i, uh, and, and it's, it's the idea of sense. Since you call on God as your father, he's talking to God's people, not those who are unsaved. He's talking to since you have now called upon God as your father, here's what you need to know about him. He judges. He has no favorites. He judges fairly. Every one of us will give an account So because of that reality, live in hope, live in holiness, but we better live in fear. Fear is recognized as a phobia. Let's play a little fear trivia this morning, can we? I'll give you the technical name of the phobia and you tell me what the fear is. 
Now, some of these you'll guess because of the prefix. But here's one, claustrophobia. It's a fear of what? Enclosed spaces. That's why some of you and your spouse, you sit so far apart. How about this one, arachnophobia? Fear of spiders. And all of God's people said, amen there. Hydrophobia. Fear of water. Bibliophobia. Fear of books. It's a problem with our kids today, right? I may not pronounce all these right. I don't know where the, the syllable emphasis would be. Uh, Botanophobia, fear of plants. Dentophobia, yeah, that's, that's me right there. I, yeah, I, my wife loves going to the dentist, and uh, I hate it. I do. I, every time I go just for teeth cleaning, I, I still ask. I just figure somebody's going to give in. I ask if they'd put me to sleep, and they won't do it, and uh, I just don't like it. If we can develop a vehicle a one-ton vehicle that can ride on the streets without an engine noise, why can't they develop a little drill that doesn't go zzzz? And so it's a whole, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's designed to be a scare tactic, I know. Dentophobia. Uh, equinophobia. Equinophobia. Yeah, fear of horses. Insectophobia. Fear of insects. Necrophobia. Death. Fear of death. Not necks. Fear of death. Dead things. Ornithophobia. Ornithophobia. Yeah. Why would you know that? Fear of birds. <laughs> uh, phobophobia. Fear of fear. Fear of phobias. So you get the idea. There's a lot of fear. There's a ton of them out there. And yet we, we think this is not a real encouraging way for people to live, to live in fear. In Exodus chapter number 20, if you remember, Moses addresses Israel immediately after God spoke the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 20 and verse 20, listen to what Moses said. Moses said unto the people, fear not, for God has come to prove you and that his fear may be before your faces that ye sin not. In other words, he says, don't fear, but you better fear. Now, how can Moses tell the people to not be afraid, but at the same time tell them to fear God and live with fear of God? Because he's talking about two different kinds of fear. And in verse number 17, I do believe that Peter's giving us both of these concepts of fear. And I want you to see this morning, just these two thoughts about living in fear. This is the third command. The first command in 1 Peter is to be filled with hope, expecting God to enable you to be what you ought to be, do what you ought to do. He commands us then to be as holy as God is holy. Means just as separate from sin as God is from sin. To be as sick about our sin as God is about our sin. To be as separated from the world to God as Jesus was from the world to his Father. But then he says, live in fear. Well, the first idea of fear is fear as terror. 
That is being afraid of God. Listen to me. If you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, if you don't know God as your Savior, you're here because God is your Creator. But being here in church does not make God to be your Savior. And if Jesus Christ is not your personal Savior, I'm not talking about religion. Sometimes people find out I'm a pastor and they say, I don't want to get into religion. I say, neither do I. I'm not for religion. The devil's for religion. Jesus didn't die on the cross to give you religion. He died on the cross to save you from religion. But if you are uncertain, if you are outside the family of God, there ought to be terror and dread when it comes to the presence of God because he's a holy lawgiver and judge. It's the kind of fear that Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw the presence of God. Isaiah 6 and verse 5, the prophet Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, you've never been saved. You will never be saved You'll never be a child of God until you see your sin as God sees it. And as long as you are okay with your sin, you've not yet met the one who died for your sin. You can close your eyes and try to sleep it off all you want to, but God says you have an appointment with God. There is a date set in the future where you will give an account of what you do with this message. I implore you, Whatever you think you want to do at this time, whatever regrets you have about coming here to the service, the worst thing you could ever do is turn the message off. Because the best friend you'll ever have is one who will tell you God's truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Oh, you want the used car salesman to tell you the truth, but you don't want the preacher to tell you the truth. You want your drill instructor to tell you the truth, but you don't want God to tell you the truth. You want your lawyer to tell you the truth, but you don't want preachers to tell you the truth. You want your parents to tell you the truth, but you don't want Jesus to tell you the truth. Listen, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. See, the basis of this fear as terror is reality because God is holy. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he died on the cross because he's holy. He can't let you get away with sin. It's not loving to let you get away with something that's going to send you to hell. In a sense, this is the right response of being in fear and terror when we see our sin the way God sees it. How can a sinner not be filled with terror before God who says in Matthew 10, 28, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Hebrews 10, 27, but a certain fearful looking for the judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. How, how, of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance be Belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It's been called the most famous sermon ever preached, delivered by Jonathan Edwards in Massachusetts, July 8th, 1741. The sermon had an amazing impact on its audience. Jonathan Edwards um, preached and launched this spiritual awakening, great awakening in America. It's a historical fact of the great awakening. He preached this message just uh, by reading it in a monotone voice. There's nothing spectacular about the preacher, nothing spectacular in his oratory skills, but there was something spectacular about the truth that he preached. And the title of the sermon is not a title you're going to find on TV preacher segments or the radio segments, but the title of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The focus of his message was about God's wrath. He used the word wrath 51 times. Do you know it was said that when he was done, the people here in that little church, they were hanging on to poles, they were hanging on to the pews, for they literally got a grip of reality and a sense that God, if he opened up the, the floor, that they would drop into hell, and it feared them. It feared them. They were gripped with fear. Listen to some of these excerpts. Edward said, and I quote, the God that holds you over the pit of hell is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. You've offended him infinitely more than even a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment that you breathe. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you were permitted to wake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you've not dropped into hell since you arose this morning out of bed, but that God's hand has held you up. Nothing else is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop into hell. Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about and ready every moment to singe that thread and burn it asunder. If we knew 
If we knew that there was one person and but one in the whole congregation that was to be the subject of this misery, what an awful thing it would be to think of. If we knew who it was, what an awful sight it would be to see such a person. How might the rest of the congregation lift up a lamentable and bitter cry over him, pleading for him to come to Christ? But alas, instead of just one, how many is it likely that will remember this discourse in hell? And it would be a wonder if some that are now present should not be in hell shortly before this year is out. And it would be no wonder if some persons that now sit here in some seats of this meeting house in health and quiet and security should be there before tomorrow morning. Thank you and have a good day. That was his message. What the history books don't tell you is that is what started the great awakening. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. There is one situation where you ought to be so filled with terror towards God. It's if you've never come to Jesus. I'm not saying coming to church. Coming to church is not the same as coming to Jesus. Coming to church, you ought to at least hear about the fact you need to come to Jesus. You can step into church. You can sit in church. You can join a church. It doesn't mean that you are in the family of God. Somebody says, well, I've got sin in my life. Who doesn't? God's not doing anything to me. Listen to me. If you have got sin in your life, there's a God who loves you. But he loves you too much to leave you that way. And if you are living in sin and you are being unbothered in your sin, and you can live any way you want to live and do what you want to do. You dictate how you're going to worship God and when you're going to worship God. Just as certain as I stand here, just as certain as I stand here, there is something else that is equally as certain. If you can live and sin and win, you do not know Jesus, you're heading to hell. Let me try it again. If you can live in sin and you win, you're not a child of the Almighty God. Because he has promised that his children, he will deal with them, Hebrews 12, because he loves them, he will chasten them, he will spank them. My mother spanked me an awful lot. She never spanked the neighbor's kids. And I found out that when she would hold my hands and she would have great centrifugal force and she would apply the uh, board of education to the seat of knowledge, that there would be quite a catastrophe when the, the two met. And what I did learn is that the closer I got to her, instead of running from her, it made it more difficult for her to swing. Every kid ought to put an extra dollar in the offering plate just because of that valuable lesson. Instead of running away, run too. And you run too and you just hold on tight. It's a whole lot harder to swing when that happens. God says he's promised to deal with his children. If you're not being dealt with, you've heard of unsolved mysteries. 
The truth is there are some unsolved mysteries, but they will come out as what is known as the great white throne judgment just before you're cast into hell, Revelation chapter 20 and chapter 21. But if you're a child of God, he's promised that there is no sin that is going to be left undone, untouched, because he lives inside. And so if you can sin and win and God not touch you and you not be convicted and you're not bothered, you are heading to hell. You're not one of his, but you can change that this morning. You can come to Jesus, say I do to Jesus and you can allow him to wash your sins away, put you into his family. I would much rather live inside his family with his love upon me. And when I step out of line and disobey and I sin that he deals with me because he loves me, rather than being outside of his family, living in sin with no care in this world, getting to do what I want to do when I want to do it, how I want to do it, but knowing I'm on the highway to hell. See, hell is more than a cuss word. It's a real place with real fire where people who don't receive Jesus will spend an eternity. See, God loves you too much to let you go to hell without the good news. If you go to hell, it's only because you said no to Jesus. You're either living in holiness or you're living on the road to hell. When you get saved, God makes you holy by nature, so he says, now live it out. How can I do it? By the one who lives in you. See, somebody who's not a part of the family of God can't live like he wants us to live because you don't have his nature. You don't have his resources. You don't have his spirit living inside. You're not a part of his family. And that's why church seems boring. That's why Christianity seems so stuffy because you've not met Jesus, the one who loves you, the one who died for you. And so you ought to, my friend, you ought to be in Fear, knowing that you take your last breath, knowing that your heart ticks for the last time, you'll die and go straight to hell. You'll live as long as God lives and you can't live with him because you didn't receive him. You have to go to the place that was designed for the devil and his angels. I want to say this. I don't preach that as often as I should. It's not preached as often as it should be preached. Because too many places, too many churches, too many preachers, they want a crowd rather than wanting Christ's approval. But this is the third command that flows after being filled with God, holy as he is holy, now live in fear. So the first idea of fear is that of being in torment, uh, being uh, experiencing terror rather because of the future torment. But number two, and I believe what Peter's emphasizing here is fear as reverence and awe for God. Reverence and awe for God. This is the kind of fear that is sensed when you realize God created me. He's my creator. Verse 17, Peter reminds us, pass your time here in fear, sojourning here in fear. In other words, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. 
See, biblical fear often refers to, yes, the negative side of things, but many times it refers to the positive side. Dozens of them. Let me just try to run through these. I I may have to cut it off, but Genesis 22, verse 12. God praised Abraham saying, now I know that thou fearest God. Deuteronomy 6, 13. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him. 1 Samuel 12, 24, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. Psalm 2 and verse 11, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Psalm 33, 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him. Psalm 111 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. 1 Peter 2 and verse 17, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God. Acts 2, 43, when the church began, it says, and fear came upon every soul. And what happened? The church grew. Because fear is this idea here in the positive sense of awe and wonder for how great God is. It's the natural, proper reaction of us mere creatures to the majestic awesomeness of the one true creator, God. It's a reverent fear prompted by a sense of smallness. Have you ever felt small, weak, maybe insignificant in the presence of the all-great, all-powerful creator. It's a humble recognition of the infinite distance between God and man. Jeremiah 10, verse 6, For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, and thy name is great in might. Verse 7, Who would not fear thee, O king of nations? For to thee doth it appertain for as much as among all the wise men of the nations and all their kingdoms, there is none like unto thee. It's an awareness concerning the distinction between our frailty as the creature and the creator God. That's, That's foundation. If you're ever prompted to ask yourself, who am I? The first answer that should pop into your mind is, I am a creature of the almighty creator God. Oh, I'm telling you, this kind of fear, it'll keep you from referring to him as the man upstairs. This kind of fear recognizes he is something, something that mind cannot comprehend because he's someone. He's someone who has no beginning and no end. Oh, it's the characteristic mark of God's people. All throughout the book of Acts, you'll find God's people referred to as God-fearers or people who feared God. Sense of awe. Perhaps there's a lack of fear, reverential fear. Maybe there's a deficiency in this reverential awe of God in our day and age because we do not perceive the grandeur, the differentness of God. When we talk about God being holy, we're talking about Him being different. He's different. He's distinct. That's why I'm working on 
our churches, uh, our church services rather, being so uh, at least aware that our worship and our service and our, our conduct, it ought to be as distinct as God is. I don't want our services to be like going to your local restaurant where you just have some hometown good cooking. No, this is a place that is the pillar and ground of truth. This is a place where we ought to come and be challenged about the fact that God is God and we're not. Oh, let me dwell on this point for a couple more minutes. The holiness, the differentness of God. We can, we can see that just talking about the size of the universe. All you have to do is walk outside on a dark night. You look up at the sky to see evidence of God's holiness, his distinctness, differentness. Psalm 19, verse number one, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech and night unto night showeth knowledge. The Bible says, Genesis 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A few verses later, it says, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Oh, if we would only respond to God as did his creation. Light came out of God's mouth and it lit up the universe. What is the speed of light? 186,000 miles per second. God said, let there be light. A beam of light could circle the earth in seven seconds. A light year is how far a beam of light would travel in a year at a speed of 186,000 miles per hour. Seconds. I'm sure you've already done math in your head, but that's 5.88 trillion miles in a year. That's the standard of measurement that we use to talk about the size of God's universe. You know, to measure that, a ruler is not going to help you. Not even a yard, not even a mile, it's useless. We have to use a ruler that is 5.88 trillion miles long to measure things in God's universe. We live in a subdivision of the universe called the Milky Way Galaxy. I've asked Brother Cherry to put up the picture of a Milky Way. Different Milky Way there, but... Um, <clears throat> some of you, that's the only Milky Way you ever thought existed. The Milky Way, which is... Our subdivision of the universe, it consists of billions of stars. And scientists say there are hundreds of billions of other subdivisions and other galaxies in the known universe. If we were to count all the stars in the Milky Way one second per star, I'm told it would take us 2,500 years. Let me read to you Isaiah 40. Verse 25 and 26. God says, To whom will you liken me? Or shall I be equal? Saith the Holy One. Lift 
up your eyes on high and behold who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, no one faileth. See, what we must do is we must right size God. Too often we're trying to make him our size. He's not our size. He does not have a brain like ours. He does not think like we think. He is working on a canvas more extensive than we can imagine. The heavens are telling us that, but the heavens are telling us something else. Not only is God huge, vast, but we are really small. Here's a picture of our Milky Way. It's 100,000 light years across. Some have referred to the Milky Way, as I mentioned, as our subdivision in the universe. If you want to visit your neighbors on the other side of the subdivision, you must travel 186,000 miles per second for 100,000 years, and boom, you'll then be at their house. Our solar system, that's our little cul-de-sac. It's not at the center of the Milky Way. It's in between a couple of the bands. Our solar system in relation to the Milky Way galaxy is as a quarter to the North American continent. Somewhere in there is a star that we call the sun. And around the sun are these planets orbiting one of which we call Earth. When we look at a picture of earth like this, we don't see Covington, Atlanta. We don't even see Georgia. We don't see cities with glitz and glamour. We don't see poverty and suffering. We don't see anybody's yard or car. We should start, if we haven't yet, Understanding that maybe our little lives are not at the center of the universe. Maybe the fall with Adam and Eve, maybe it tricked us that we're not quite as important as we think we are. Maybe our lives are not as, not as grand as we make them out to be. Remember Neil Armstrong? Armstrong said it. I remember on the way home from space, it struck me. That tiny pea, pretty and blue was the earth. I put my thumb out and I shut one eye and my thumb blotted out the earth, but I didn't feel like a giant. I felt very, very small. The psalmist said in chapter 8, verse 3 and 4, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? and the Son of Man that thou visitest him. In 1977, NASA launched Voyager on a one-way mission to take images of planets in our solar system. Thirteen years later, scientists sent a message to Voyager telling it to turn around and take one last panoramic snapshot of all the planets you visited. 
By now, Voyager is 3.7 billion miles from the earth, traveling 40,000 miles per hour away from the sun. And it turns around and it takes a succession of 60 images and beams the images back to earth. But it takes months for the images to come back. But it was put in a composite form. It's a famous image that is now called the pale blue dot. Because suspended in one of the beams of sunlight was a tiny little speck. It was earth from 3.7 billion miles away. It just happened to be caught in a ray of light reflecting off Voyager. One astronomer remarked that everyone who has ever lived has lived on a tiny dot that he called a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. See, my life is a tiny little blip on the radar of history. Your life, as James calls it, is just a vapor, a puff of smoke. An infinitesimal little life, a blip of vapor, very, very small. If the universe is simply a habitation for you and me, some scientists said that seems to be oversized. That's why they struggle with thinking. There has to be life somewhere else. All of this, and we're the only people, all of this, this is so oversized if we are all that exists. But what if? What if the primary purpose of vastness of the universe is not just to provide a home for you and me? What if the vastness of this universe is to show off the splendor, the majesty, the greatness, and the glory of our wonderful God? In that case, the universe is not too big. It's just about the right size. But it is really just significant insignificance. Because as tiny as we are, we are known and prized by the majesty of the one who sent for us, who knows us and loves us, even though we're teeny tiny little people, specks floating through space on the moat of dust suspended in the sunbeam that he has made. Just as God can name every star as he called them into being and put them in their places, he could come into this building and call you by your name and 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 the great creator of all the heavens can come into this building, to this city, this state, this country, this planet and call each person by their name not only because he created you but because he knows you, he's aware of you, he loves you, and he's come for you. What is it that's telling us how great our God is? Let me give you one more image. It's Jesus on the cross. I don't know of a greater image to show how great he truly is. He made everything we've seen 
Through Jesus, God made the world. He created all things, things in heaven, things on the earth. The creator of it all, coming to the pale blue dot, the maker of that whole wide universe. He hung on a cross because he loves you. He loves you too much to let you walk away without knowing that he loves you. Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. Listen, long before you decided what you were ever going to do with Jesus, He decided what He was going to do with you. And He died on the cross 2,000 years ago so that today, someone who's come in here to church, but you don't know your sins are forgiven, you don't know that you have a home in heaven, you don't know that you have eternal life. I've preached too many funerals where people, they want to talk about the one who deceased as being in a better place. No one is in a better place who has not settled the matter of their salvation. Someone said, I don't care if I go to hell. I'm going to go to hell and I will, I will party my way. Listen to me. You only talk like that because you're a fool. A fool says no to God. You've not heard what God says about hell. It's a real place, burning place. No one wants to go out and sit down in a lawn chair or stretch back on a lounge chair burning in flames. No one does that. No one does that. And yet people will disregard because you've been duped and deceived and lied to by the one who's called the devil. The arch enemy of God. He has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. You can try to put him out of your mind, but you hear me, one day you'll stand before him. While you could sleep in a service, you will not close your eyes. You won't even bat your eyes when standing before him. All of space is clear and you'll stand before God and he will let you know according to the word of God, you're guilty. He will let you know according to the book of your sins, you're guilty. And he will take the Lamb's book of life and while your name might be on the registry rolls of the county in which you live, if they're not found in the Lamb's book of life, you're guilty. And you'll be cast into the lake of fire. Which fear do you want to live with? The fear of terror? Because you don't know Jesus as your Savior. Or the fear and being in awe over how awesome of a father you have. It's your choice. What will you do with Jesus? And that will determine what he does with you. Let's stand together, please.